So Holy Spirit, help us to understand and apply those words to our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to say happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers or who have ever had a mother. I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you. Also, um, this is our Volunteer Appreciation Day. So I want to say thank you to all of you who volunteer in one way or another in this church. We could not do what we do without you. So you volunteers, thank you very much. We appreciate you a ton. One of Walt Disney's first jobs was with the Kansas City Star newspaper, but he was fired because his boss said that he had no imagination and lacked creative ideas. I think his boss lacked creative ideas. What do you think? So Disney went on to draw Mickey Mouse and then eventually bought the Kansas City Star. Isn't that a satisfying story? I find it very satisfying. I think because you know, Disney pretty much defined imagination. In fact, when Disney World in Florida was opened, he had already died before it was finished. Uh, he, you know, he'd seen it, he'd, 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 he'd overseen the construction, he'd imagined it, all of that, envisioned it. And at the grand opening, his wife was the speaker. And she was introduced by a man who said, I just wish Walt could have seen this. And she stepped to the microphone and said, he did, and sat down. That's the power of imagination. It brings into being that which hasn't existed before. In fact, one of the jobs at Disneyland, it's a great job, it's called Imagineer. And it's to imagine things and then engineer it to make it happen. And in a way, that describes God, Imagineer. He imagined all of this and then engineered it so that it would happen. And he made us to be Imagineers as well. Even in the smallest daily things of our daily life, even in the smallest things. I've been teaching my oldest daughter how to drive out there in the church parking lot, and I am wearing a hole in the floor of the passenger side from hitting that imaginary brake that all cars should be equipped with, you know? And I know it's not there, but I keep hitting it anyway. That's the power of imagination. It can make things seem very, very real. And I need to say that mostly my daughter is doing a very good job, although there was an incident which she has given me permission to talk about, where instead of hitting the brake, she hit the gas and went up over the sidewalk and into the bushes. And as soon as it happened, she started to laugh and said, oh, now you're going to put this in a sermon. <laughs> that was her imagination, and look, it happened. It came into being. She actually gave me permission to tell that story for my birthday this year. Uh, we're doing a sermon series called Thank God It's Tuesday about experiencing the resurrected Easter kind of life every single day of the week, especially in our work. And we all have work to do. If you're a student, your job is school. If you are a parent, your work is never-ending, and you know that. You, what's Nixters, a.k.a. retired folks? God still has work for you to do. And the goal of this series is to help us figure out what that work is and to find more meaning and more joy in it. But more than that, this is also part of Jesus' grand strategy to make all things new. That's what Jesus' project is. And what would happen if every one of us became carriers of Easter, agents in the making new of all things, right where God has put us, in schools, offices, hospitals, neighborhoods, all throughout King County, Monday through Saturday. The east side would be completely transformed. And to do that, and to find more joy and meaning in our work, we have to become redemptive imagineers. People who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, imagine what God wants to do in our workplace, how he wants to make it new, and then partner with him to engineer it, to make it happen. 
And, and one of the best examples of a redemptive imagineer in the Bible is this guy named Joseph, who we just read about. And out of his father Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph was daddy's favorite. So his dad bought him a fancy coat. Old King James says it was a coat of many colors. Hebrew actually just means kind of a, a, a fancy, expensive coat. So, you know, got it at Neiman Marcus, right? And his brothers got their coat at Kmart while the blue light was flashing. And as a result of that, it says in just four verses, it says three times how his brothers hated him. But Joseph, who was 17 at the time, goes to his brothers and he says, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves when suddenly my sheaves stood upright while your sheaves bowed down to mine. Okay, was that wise? Like, you know, I mean, it's just like basically, you know, check it out, guys. I'm the boss of you, right? And now it does show that Joseph has a very active imagination. He's a dreamer. Right? And this dream comes from God. It's predicting his future. It's just Joseph told it to the wrong people at the wrong time. But God is going to use that imagination. So Joseph's brothers decide to kill him, you know, as you do when someone has better clothes than you. But at the very last minute, they change their mind and they sell him to slave traders. And he ends up as a slave working for a wealthy man in Egypt named Potiphar. And he does such a good job that he becomes the chief manager of Potiphar's property, showing that one of the ways that we bring God into our work is simply to do it well. But then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. He says no. This is a total soap opera, by the way. Okay? He says no. She gets mad, falsely accuses him of rape, and he's thrown into jail. Where again, because of his hard work, he rises to become the manager of the prison. And then he meets Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. And they both have a dream which Joseph interprets. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, your dream means that Pharaoh is going to release you from prison and give you your job back. And when he does that, remember me and get me out of jail. Well, the baker heard that and thought that sounded pretty good. So Baker tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph says to the baker, ooh, your dream means that Pharaoh is going to chop off your head and feed your body to the birds. And the baker says, that's the last time I tell you one of my dreams, man. And then all of that happened just as Joseph predicted. But the cupbearer forgot about Joseph for two more years until Pharaoh had a dream. And then the cupbearer remembered Joseph, who through God's help interprets Pharaoh's dream to mean that a famine is coming. So Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command of all of Egypt, largest empire of the day. And Joseph oversees a food storage program that when the famine hits, saves thousands and thousands of lives. Joseph's career path is an absolute roller coaster. Right, he starts on the high of being his dad's favorite, down to the low of being a slave, back up to the high of being head manager for Potiphar, down to the low of being in prison, then up to the manager of the prison, then down to being forgotten in prison, and then finally up to being second in command of all of Egypt. Up, down, up, down, just like the Mariners are playing this year. <laughs> but in all of those different jobs, he was a redemptive imagineer. He could imagine through the power of the Holy Spirit how God wanted to make things new there and partner with God in making it so. And as a result, he was able to find meaning, purpose, and even a little bit of joy, even in prison, even as a slave, showing that God can work even in the hardest of jobs. And Joseph's story gives us a couple of ways that we can find more meaning and joy in our work by being those redemptive imagineers wherever God has put us. A couple of things we need to do for that. And the first is this, we need to live the right story. There's a lot of research that says that our brains interpret things, make sense of things by putting them in a story. Classic illustration that is often given for this is to illustrate it is if a stranger came up to you on the street and said the name of the common duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus, 
You'd understand the words, but his actions would mean nothing. It would just seem bizarre. So you'd have to create a story to make sense of it. So maybe this guy is just crazy. Well, that would explain it, right? Or maybe the day before, someone who looked really close to you, looked like you, asked this guy, what is the Latin word for duck? And so now he's answering the question. That would explain it. Or maybe he's a foreign spy giving you a very ill-chosen code sentence. But however it works, you need a story to try to interpret the events. All of us have stories in our minds through which we interpret our life events. So for instance, let's say growing up, someone had really angry parents, very critical, abusive, emotionally abusive. For the rest of that person's life, they will tend to interpret everything through that. So even the most constructive criticism from a friend gets put through that story, gets interpreted through the lens of that narrative, and the person thinks, see, you're out to get me, or you hate me, or you're abusive, or whatever. Part of what therapy does is to give people a different story. You're not a victim. You're a survivor. You must be very strong to have overcome all of that. And now things get interpreted differently. So to change our lives, our offices, our schools, change how we feel about our jobs, the first thing is we need to live the right story. We need to live a redemptive story. And that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible story in a nutshell is this. God is the former. Satan is the deformer. Jesus is the transformer. That's the Bible in a nutshell. We ran away from God. God chased after us, coming himself in the person of Jesus. He is on a rescue mission to draw us back to himself and make all things new. And that is the story that Joseph chose to live. And it is a choice. Because you see, if you are in prison, sold into slavery and then a prisoner, your narrative, your story easily could be, everybody hates me, God's out to get me. But Joseph chose to live God's story of the making new of all things. And you can see this, even the most subtle verses. It's all throughout the story, Joseph's redemptive imagination, but you can miss it really easily. So actually, there's one verse I want us to read together, just for emphasis. Go ahead and put it up. Let's read this together. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zavethanana. Oh, man. That was terrible. I want you to know they nailed it at 9 o'clock, okay? It's just... I don't know how to pronounce that either. Emily, do you know how to pronounce No, no one knows how to pronounce that. Here's the point of that fancy word, though. It's a new name. Joseph was a slave and in prison. This new name means God has heard and he will live. It's a redemptive name. Joseph continues the naming theme, goes on to name one of his kids Ephraim, which means fruitful because Joseph says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He's living a redemptive story even by how he's naming things. Eventually, Joseph is reconciled with his brothers. And when he is, he says to his brothers, don't be angry for selling me here, with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. See, this is the narrative he's, he's living, that he's constructing. If he'd never been sold into slavery, he never would have ended up in prison where he met the cupbearer who introduced him to Pharaoh, who made him second in command of Egypt to save all those lives. That's the story that Joseph is living. He understands that he is not a prisoner or a slave. He is an agent in the making new of all things. Wherever he is, he is a redemptive imagineer, and God has been at work all along behind the scenes. And the way we do this, the way we get this story in our head and be part of it, same way Joseph did, through prayer and relying on the Holy Spirit to give us creative ideas of how God wants to make things new, where we are throughout the week in our offices, schools, neighborhoods. And then we need the patience and the discipline to do what Jesus nudges us to do. And when we do that, all kinds of things start to change. So for instance, let's take parenting. Right? Sometimes my wife and I will look at each other and we'll go like, man, our kids, man, they have picked up some of the worst traits from both of us. You know, some from me, some from you, mostly you. 
But that is not God's story. God's story is a redemptive story, right? Plus, just as an aside, right, okay, I don't care how messed up your family is. This is why reading the Bible is so helpful. It cannot possibly be as messed up as Joseph's family, right? I mean, any, your kids may fight, but have they tried fratricide lately? Okay, you are ahead of Joseph. Happy Mother's Day, right? That's your Mother's Day gift for me today. So sometimes, before I discipline my kids, I will pray, Jesus, show me who you're making them to be. And how can I be part of that by how I handle this moment? Now, I don't do that all the time, but sometimes I pray that prayer. That's living a redemptive story rather than a punitive story. Or let's say the narrative in your company, because companies have narratives, let's say the story in your company is the only thing that matters is profit. Well, you can live a counter-narrative that says, yes, profit matters very much, but so do other things, like helping employees thrive, being transparent, customer service. Or let's say you're a reporter. Often the story the news tells is just negative. But if you do your job with the gospel story in mind, it might mean reporting not just what's going wrong, but some of the glimmers of hope and redemption. So for instance, just recently, King 5 News did a story on how we, as well as other churches, joined together to help raise money for the mudslide victims. That is a redemptive story, right? That's living that redemptive story. In fact, the day they did the story, they had a camera crew out in front here, and one of our elders asked me, what is King 5 News doing here? And I said, well, they interviewed me about how we're helping the mudslide victims. Then he reminded me that the previous week I had said something that sometimes it bothers me, that the national media coverage of Christians seems to be that they find the dumbest Christian in America and put him on the air. (laughs) So the elder said, looks like they found their man. (laughs) See what I have to, see the burden I bear. The weight I carry, right? They did a redemptive story. To be redemptive imagineers, so we can find more joy and meaning in work, we got to live the right story. Second thing we need to do, do what you can within your sphere of influence. A lot of times people will say, I can't make a difference where I'm at. I, you know, I don't have a lot of power. I'm not high on the orgs. I'm just a mid-level manager. I don't have any influence. Well, Joseph was a slave and then in prison. How much power did he have? but he was able to make a difference in his sphere of influence. Saw a news story a couple months ago about a 90-year-old woman who is mostly homebound, but there's a high school down the street from where she lives. So she started praying for that high school, and as she did, the Holy Spirit gave her some creative ideas. And so now what she does is she sits in front of her window in the morning and in the afternoon and waves to the students on their way to and from school. And and at first, the students thought it was kind of weird. In fact, I think the word creepy was used by one of the students. You're like, stalker grandma, this is kind of scary. But eventually, it came to mean a whole lot to these students because some of these students, you know, they don't feel connected to their parents. Some of them have parents who don't pay attention to them. Some don't, you know, some have parents who are just missing altogether. And to know that there is someone in the older generation who cares about them made them feel loved and made them feel valued. So this year, on Valentine's Day, the students put together this giant assembly at the school for this 90-year-old woman who had become their grandma. And all the students were in on it. They brought her to the assembly. They got her a cake, this giant card they all had signed. They all sang to her. And she, of course, she is just beaming. She is just having the time of her life. And she says, as a 90-year-old homebound person, this is something I can do. And it gives me joy, and it puts meaning and purpose into my day. Now, how big is her sphere of influence? Well, she's, she's homebound. It's not very big. 
But she's part of the making new of all things. She is a redemptive imagineer in the space that she can influence. And so are those high school students who are helping her feel loved and cared about. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story of meeting a woman in his church who wasn't a Christian but had just started coming, so he asked her why. And she said that a few months prior, she had made a huge mistake at work that was going to cost the company a lot of money. She thought for sure she was going to be fired. But her manager went to his boss and took responsibility for the whole thing. And she said, I'm used to my supervisors taking credit for the good things I do, but never responsibility for the bad stuff. So she asked the manager, why did you do that? And he said, well, I'm a Christian. And what that means to me is that I'm accepted by God because Jesus took the blame on the cross for the wrong things I've done. That's why I manage the way that I do. In the Bible, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Another way to translate that verse would be, let your light so shine that people form a right opinion about God. That manager, that mid-level manager, managed in a way that helped that woman form a right opinion about God. Live God's redemptive story, do what you can in your sphere of influence, and finally focus on your character. Because one of the things that God wants to make new is you. And work is one of his best tools to do that. You know, at the beginning of the story, Joseph is just basically a spoiled brat, bragging to his siblings, you know, I'm the boss of you, blah, 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 and he ends up as a slave. God didn't cause that, his brothers did, but God used those circumstances to grow him. In prison, Joseph notices that the cupbearer and the baker are depressed, and Joseph says this, why do you look so sad today? You could miss that verse, but it's, it's, it's a huge shift. This is Joseph, who was so oblivious, so into himself, he didn't notice his brothers were so mad they weren't talking to him. But here, in prison, he's in prison unjustly. And even still, he's now showing compassion and kindness to someone who needs it. He went from having a coat to having character. And if God had saved him from all of those trials, Joseph just would have been lost later on. Never would have become second in command to save all of those lives. You see, sometimes God saves us from the fire. Other times, God saves us through the fire. But either way, when we're down to nothing, God is always up to something. So in that job you hate or in that circumstance that you can't stand that you're in, know that God may eventually move you to a different situation, but for the moment you're there. And so pray these prayers. God, what are you doing here? How are you preparing for my future, me for my future here? Does this job give me time or money that I can spend in other ways? What are you doing here? Now, all of that requires patience. Joseph's story took 13 years to unfold requires patience, and then the discipline to do those things that God nudges you to do. I recently got together with a man who I'll call Bob. Bob's in his mid-30s, and he used to own a construction company and made a fortune remodeling homes and flipping houses, but then he got hooked on crack and heroin and ended up homeless. Eventually, he got himself into a recovery program, and at that point, he started coming here to this church. In fact, one of the reasons Bob wanted to get together with me was to tell me how important this church was for his healing process. Well, after a couple of years, he moved over to Seattle, and he started to reach out to some of the homeless and the drug addicts in the city. He said he didn't want to do it, but the internal pressure from Jesus was so much he couldn't resist, and he had the discipline to follow up on the nudges that God had given him. So now he gets together with these homeless folks, crack addicts, they read the Bible together, they discuss it, they pray together, and he's given this group a name. Whenever he posts things on Facebook, the official name is church, for lack of a better word. 
I thought that was a good name. I'd, I'd sort of like to call ourselves that, right? Like, where are you going today? Church, for lack of a better word. So he started to put this together. They meet every week, and miracles are happening. One guy, he said, one guy who's a drug dealer, a male stripper, and a prostitute got baptized on Easter and is now looking for a different line of work. They prayed for one woman who has severe back pain. She was suicidal. It was so bad. They prayed for her, completely healed. It's all gone. And they've been meeting in parks, but in the winter, meeting in a park doesn't work so well. So now he's talking to a guy who owns a strip club about having his church meet there. Because as it turns out, there's not a lot of business there on Sunday morning. So the space is free. Right? Redemptive imagination. Making all things new. Even, I just love this story. Even strip clubs, right? So to, po- to support himself, Bob is doing odd construction jobs here and there, but he's barely making it financially. But he says he can't bear to do even more, even though he used to love to do it, even though with his know-how he could make a fortune, he can't bear to do any more because he wants to spend all of his time with the people in his church. So then he said, so I've been thinking about becoming a pastor, at which point my face fell and I kind of frowned because it seemed like such a letdown, right? Like, oh man, the story was going in such a good direction and now you're going to be a pastor, right? Like, total bummer. But then he said, but, but then I got this idea. I know how to build a construction business. I've done it before. And the people in my church need jobs. So what if I started a construction company and hired the people in my church, for lack of a better word, hired them, gave them skills and experience, maybe even charged less than other construction companies? Wouldn't that be a win all the way around? And I said, yes. And now you can be with your folks in your church, not just on Sunday, but you can be with them all week long, and not just as their pastor, but also as their boss. And really, that's every pastor's dream. (laughs) Boss your congregation around, pick that up, tote that barge, right? Like, you're living the dream, man. Through prayer, he is being guided by the creative, redemptive imagination of the Holy Spirit. He knows that Jesus' project is to make all things new, and that is the story that he is living out of. He's doing what he can in the sphere of influence that he has, and in the process, he is being transformed. He is a redemptive imagineer and having so much darn fun doing it. So as you think about your work, whatever it is, parenting, a job, school, volunteer activities, ask Jesus to give you creative ideas of how your story can be part of his story of making all things new. And then on that blank piece of paper that we're putting in the bulletin every week this series, on that blank piece of paper this week, maybe write down one way you want to see Jesus make something new in your work. Write that one way down, take it home, pray for that all week long. You know, at the end of Joseph's story, he forgives his brothers. He is the first person in the Bible, maybe in human history, to truly, really deeply forgive. And in so doing, he heals generations of family dysfunction. Joseph's father, Jacob, was almost killed by his brother Esau. One of Joseph's brothers commits incest with his daughter-in-law. Right? Their family is a mess, but this is the family that eventually produces Jesus. And it's, it's not an accident that Jesus emerges from this messed up, broken down, dysfunctional family because it shows that Jesus steps into the most messed up places and makes them brand new. And as we live that story, as we become those redemptive imagineers with him, then bit by bit, folks in poverty get revived, and marriages get healed, and kids who don't feel loved feel loved, and offices that are places of fear and frantic striving become places that experience more joy and more life. And someday, church, it may take a generation, but someday they're going to have to do a news story on the east side because of how Jesus is on the move, and nothing is going to stop him. When Jesus is on the move, nothing will stop him. 
until house by house, block by block, school by school, family by family, hospital by hospital, office by office, courtroom by courtroom, day by day, year by year, the kingdom of this world becomes more and more like the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Can you imagine it? Because here's the thing. You can, you can say yes. You, that's a Presbyterian amen, the applause. You can say amen. Can you imagine it? Because here's the thing. Jesus does imagine it. And he wants to do all of that through you and me. So Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, make us those redemptive imagineers. We ask that you would help us this week imagine how you want to make things new in our work, whatever that is. And then, Lord, help us work with you to engineer it, to make it so, through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.